Well, good morning, Southwinds. It's great to see everybody. We're glad you're here. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. And I'm going to start today by asking a question. And that question is, what if you could live your life backward? Now, there's a famous quote from the philosopher Søren Kierkegaard that says, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And I want to tweak that one by asking, what if you could live your life with the one thing that you know is absolutely certain to happen, your death in mind? If you did that, what would you want your life to communicate? What would your life be about? What would you want people to say about you at your funeral? Uh, I came across some actual last words and some epitaphs uh, this week, some of which are profound, others are sort of ridiculous. Uh, For example, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, his last words on his deathbed were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality I should have. I mean, like perfectionist much, you know, isn't the Mona Lisa enough? You know, you think about that. And then right before he was hanged by the British, Revolutionary War hero Nathan Hale said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Brave words, heroic words. Sometimes people write epitaphs on tombstones that, you know, capture who the person that's buried really, really was. And here's one example. It says this, Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. (laughs) This was on a dentist's tombstone. It said, Walter Brown lies here, filling his last cavity. (laughs) And this one's on an unnamed tombstone found in western North Carolina. It says, uh, here lies Pa. Pa liked women. Ma caught Pa in with two swimming. Here lies Pa. (laughs) Well, the question really is, what would you want on your tombstone? And today I want to show you four things that I believe Paul might have wanted on his tombstone. Of course, we know Paul had no real tombstone. Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome. Scholars say his body was likely discarded, most likely eaten by dogs. But I think we can say that these four things capture much of the essence of Paul's life because they come here in Acts 20 in a a farewell speech that Paul gives to a group of leaders in the church in Ephesus, people that he knows he's never going to see again. He is on his way to Rome. We've entered into the last phase of this story of the book of Acts. Paul knows that he's going to go there and he's going to die there. And so as he meets with these people, he sums up his entire life for them. Scholars sometimes Uh, refer to this passage as Paul's last will and testament. And by the way, kind of a side note, uh, this is right here the only extended speech in Acts that is given to Christians. Uh, All the others that we have are sermons or messages or speeches given to unbelievers. And so this tells us that we're getting here a crucial insight uh, into how Luke, who's the author of Acts, thinks that believers uh, should look at their lives. See, living life backward, it means that you you sort of reverse engineer your life. See, it's good, the Bible tells us, to face the reality of our death 
one day and to start to live our lives today in light of what we know is going to come, in light of what we might want our tombstone to say. There's actually a verse in the Old Testament that reminds us of this. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And the German reformer Martin Luther translated that verse into German. Uh, He's translated it, Lord, teach us to think about death so that we might learn how to live. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that we saw that Paul spent three years in this world-class city of Ephesus, this city on what is now the western coast of modern-day Turkey. It was the longest time that he spent in any one place, three years teaching, building up the church. And Paul was so successful, Luke writes in Acts 19.10, that all the people in that province heard the word of the Lord. Paul finished his ministry there, and he leaves Ephesus. He spends the winter in Corinth in Greek across the Aegean Sea, And we're going to pick the story up where he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And he's in a rush because he wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, probably in the year AD 56. But before he gets there, he wants to see the leaders of this church in Ephesus one more time. And so he comes ashore with his boat on this, the coast, the city of Miletus is about 20 miles south of Ephesus. And while he's there, he sends for the elders of the church. And the passage we're reading now are his last words to them. Beginning in verse 17, Luke writes, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews." You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Now Paul's farewell speech to these leaders that he loved is just this marvelous, amazing statement of his heart. It's, it's actually not easy to outline because these themes that Paul is speaking about kind of weave themselves throughout all of these verses. But I think as we look at these verses carefully, we can see at least four ways that God would call us to live life backwards. I'm going to give you the first one right here. You can write this down on your message notes. Number one, uh, we love Jesus' church. Paul's opening words to these Ephesian elders were, you know how much or how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. And one of the things that's most striking about Paul all through his life is how much he loved Jesus' church. Paul gave his life to serving Jesus' church. Paul sacrificed for Jesus' church. Paul suffered for Jesus' church. And I want you to notice I am saying Jesus' church. I am not just saying church. I'm doing it this way intentionally because I know that we too easily hear the word church and we think institution. We don't think of that word like Paul thought of it. Paul heard church and he thought body of Christ, bride of Christ. Paul used this word church and he thought about the people that Jesus gave his life to save and forgive and and set free and adopt into God's family. Paul loved Jesus' church. And we've been seeing that all through the book of Acts. If you haven't noticed, you need to read again how Paul loved the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. We're seeing it again here. Uh, You say, well, where are you getting that in the text? Well, it's right here. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. And those last two words are key. Uh, The phrase with you is actually much deeper than it seems to us in English. You can go back to the Gospels. And in the Gospels, it says that Jesus appointed the 12 disciples to be with him. Jesus, in other words, shared all of his life with his disciples. And that's the idea here. Paul is saying, I was with you. It means I I came to you to be utterly connected in all the areas of life. It's like Paul is saying, I came to live with you, eat with you, work with you, rejoice with you, laugh with you, play with you, to be completely with you. I came to show you who I am, who Jesus is, how he wants you to live with you. See, Paul could only do that because he loved those people. And that's the reason he stopped on his journey back to Jerusalem and called for these leaders. He loved them. He loved Jesus' church. And I'm highlighting this today because I want to say to you, there is nothing that you can do with your life that will have more eternal significance than loving Jesus' church. Loving the people Jesus died for loving the work that Jesus sends his people out to do, loving the mission that Jesus gave you to be a sent person, living in the midst of a sent people. And I think far too many of us don't think like this. See, do you ever think of this? When you're with your small group, 
reading God's word and praying for each other. I love Jesus Church. I'm so grateful I get to be a part of Jesus Church. Do you ever think of that when you're serving kids or teenagers here on Sundays, here during our services? Or maybe during the week when you're serving kids in Awanas or, or maybe some of you leading a, a teenager's small group. Do you ever think of this when you're getting our campus ready or you're welcoming our guests as part of our guest services team? You see, it just changes everything if we see what we do as loving Jesus' church. As we continue through Paul's words, we're going to see more ways that we should live life backward. But I want you to keep in mind, every one of them all comes back to here, all comes back to loving Jesus' church. Here's a second way we live life backward. We tell the truth, even when it's hard. Paul says this twice. In verse 20, he says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And then in verse 27, he says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. You see, Paul saw himself as a herald of truth. And a herald back then was not responsible for the content of the message, was not responsible for whether people liked the message or not or responded to the message or not. A herald was responsible only to deliver the message. Theologian J.I. Packer writes, Paul, in his own estimation, was not a philosopher not a moralist, not the world's wisest man, but simply Christ's herald. Paul's royal master had given him a message to proclaim. His whole business, therefore, was to deliver that message with exact and studious faithfulness. He added nothing, altered nothing, omitted nothing. I want to show you how seriously Paul took this. If you look at verse 26, he says, Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. What Paul is doing here is he's referring back to a verse in the prophecy of Ezekiel where God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel and calls Ezekiel a watchman. A watchman during the Old Testament times was someone who stood on the city wall and watched for the enemy. His job was just to watch for the city's sake and warn the city whenever enemy was coming. Ezekiel 33.8 says, When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. That's what Paul's talking about. He knows that telling the truth starts for us as God's people with the gospel. And the gospel says so clearly to us, That every one of us, every human being who's ever lived, we stand underneath the judgment of God because of our sin. We are dead in our sin, absolutely helpless. There's nothing we can do about it. But the gospel says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and Jesus came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus lived the life we could never live. He died the death we should have died. And then God raised him from the grave, from the dead, to live forevermore as Lord. And as Lord today, Jesus provides forgiveness and salvation and new life and freedom to all who will humble themselves and admit that they are sinners, rebels who deserve judgment. All we have to do is repent and believe. 
And if we do, we will be saved. That's the gospel. And it is our job to tell that truth. That is what Paul was talking about here. And it's the responsibility of all of us. We're not responsible for how people respond to that. We're responsible to tell them. As a pastor, I'm not responsible for how you respond to the teaching of God's word. I'm responsible to do my best to make it as clear as I possibly can. It's kind of an interesting thing being a pastor. Over the years that I've been here at Southwinds, uh, people have left sometimes because they say, you're always talking about sin. You are too negative. You make me feel bad. And then there are some other people who have left because they say, you're too positive. You don't talk about sin enough. In the last couple of years, people have gotten mad at me and left because I'm too political. And then some other people have gotten mad at me because I wasn't political enough. Here's the thing. In the end, I know that I'm only responsible for making the message clear. I'm not responsible for how anyone responds to that. And I just want to take that and ask you, have you been clear with your friends and your family about God's word to them? You see, this doesn't mean that you have made them all believe. This doesn't mean that you're like grinding them into the ground all the time, that all you talk about every time you see them is, you know, turn or burn. This is not what we're saying. All Paul was saying was this, I did not shrink, I did not hesitate from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And Paul hadn't persuaded everyone in Ephesus. The vast majority of the people in that great city were unconverted. But that wasn't his job. His job was to make it clear. And that's the question for us today. Have we been clear with the people in our lives? I want to point out to you a couple of things about how Paul told the truth that apply to us as well as we tell the truth. What, what characterized Paul's attitude, first of all, uh, was tears, not anger. And this means that we should tell the truth with tears. Verse 19 says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. Verse 31 says, I never stop warning each of you night and day with tears. You know, for many of us, let's be honest, our attitude toward family and, and friends who, who don't know Jesus oftentimes kind of toggles between apathy and anger. Does your presentation of the truth flow with tears? There's a 19th century British pastor named Charles Spurgeon. And he once wrote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the, in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Shouldn't this be true today of us? Shouldn't this be true of our city? Let not one of our friends go unwarned or unprayed for. And God help us if someone in our family goes unwarned, unprayed for. I just ask you, what, what makes you cry? What makes you weep? Now, here's the deal. I know 
that some of you were crying yesterday watching a wedding of two people that you have never met that live in a whole other country. And that's okay. I'm not judging that, criticizing that. I'm just saying, do you weep over that which is eternally important? Do you weep over your lost friends and family? Do they know that? Do you weep over nations and villages that are lost without the good news of Jesus, his gospel? We should tell the truth with tears. We also see in Paul's life we should tell the truth with humility. Paul says he served with great humility. In other words, not pride. Paul was willing in his presentation of truth, in his interactions with people as he told them the truth, he was willing to be vulnerable, be weak, so that Christ's power could be seen through him. Paul wasn't trying to build himself up or bring glory to himself. He says, I am a man of humility and tears. In fact, that word humility in verse 19 is often translated weakness. It was a very common word in Greek. And here's what you need to understand. In that time, in the culture, that word was almost always used as an insult. It was not a word people wanted to take to themselves. It meant low and defeated and weak. But in the Bible... This word is used 200 times, and it is almost always considered a virtue. What makes an insult outside the gospel become a virtue inside the gospel? Well, the answer is because Christian ministry is not about extraordinary men and women of great character who are worthy to be praised, but about a great Savior who can save the weakest and most broken and most guilty of sinners. And Paul doesn't want to leave these people with an example uh, of his life to admire. He wants to leave them with a Savior that they trust in. Tim Keller, pastor, writes, A humble and weak person will show a crucified Savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled-together expert. Because that's how it happened for us. We weren't saved by pulling ourselves together, but by admitting we were sinners and calling on the one who was pulled apart for us. Do we tell people the truth with pride, thinking that because somehow Jesus has opened our eyes that we are somehow better than they are? Or do we tell them the truth, realizing that it's always all about grace, that the only reason we know what we know is that Jesus loved us and showed us mercy. Do we tell them the truth even when it's hard? Do we tell it with tears? Do we tell it with humility? Third way that we can live life backwards, we see in Paul's words, are we stay faithful to Jesus' mission for our lives. And this is the heart of what Paul really says, I think, in this passage. Verse 24 is the key verse. He says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul is just saying here, my single focus in life has been and is to do what God has told me to do. And that's why he he is saying that none of these threats or dangers really matter to me. Paul says, I just want to do what Jesus told me to do. And at the end of the day, that is all that any of us are really responsible for. So here's a question for you. What has Jesus called you to do? Some of you should write this down. What has Jesus called me to do? 
You're not responsible to save the world. You are responsible to fulfill the assignment that Jesus has given to you. You know, as you think about this, there's like, uh, two ways that people can go wrong with this. Some, of, some people, maybe this is some of you, they feel so responsible for everything, like to save the world, to fix their friends, to make sure their kids turn out perfectly okay, to save the poor and all of the orphans, and they just carry the weight of the world around on their shoulder, and no matter what they do, it's never enough. They're always worried. What if I do something and I wreck my kid's life? What if I do something and somebody doesn't come to know Jesus? What if, what if, what if? But then there's other people, and I kind of think this is probably more of us than the first case. There are other people who never, ever stop to think that they have been given responsibilities by God. You're just living your life. You have a career. You have a job. You have responsibilities. That's what you think your life is about. And if that's what you think, I'm here to tell you because I'm telling you the truth. You're wrong. If you know Jesus, he's given you an assignment. He's given you a mission and a responsibility, and you should be thinking about this. So neither one of these, the, these, these poles are where we should be. Paul would say it's somewhere between those. Here's how he puts it in 1 Corinthians 4.2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. See, a steward is just a servant. A servant is not in charge of the whole house. The master is. The servant, the steward, is just responsible to do what the master tells him. Maybe you can think about it like this, like a, a money manager. If, if I have uh, some funds I want to invest and I go to my broker and I give him this sum of money and I tell him to invest that in a certain company and the company tanks, he doesn't take the blame. He just did what I told him to do. But if he invests that money and it succeeds and it multiplies, he doesn't get the credit. He has just done what I told him to do. See, write this down. Success and failure are master words. Faithfulness is a steward's word. And God just requires us to be faithful to what he's assigned us. You see, some of you are so obsessed about the success or failure of your life, how it's all going to turn out. That just shows you think you're in charge. You're not the master. You're just a steward. And what you should be thinking about is faithfulness. And so to those of you who tend to carry around the weight of too much responsibility, you need to be reminded God just requires you to be faithful to his assignment. All of us, we need to be reminded that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God can do more with one simple act of faithfulness than any of us can do with 10,000 lifetimes of effort on our own. We saw uh, some time ago in our study here in Acts a great example of this. It was back in Acts chapter 8. Uh, it's Philip. He's serving God in Samaria. You remember this story? God is using him to proclaim the gospel. Thousands of people are responding. He is performing these great miracles. Uh, people are being healed through uh, his ministry. And then kind of right in the middle of all this, the Spirit of God comes to Philip and tells him to leave Samaria where he's having all of this kingdom success and go and stand by the side of a desert road on the way to Gaza out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm sure that Philip wondered why. But Philip obeyed. And soon a chariot comes by. 
carrying a man we now know as the Ethiopian eunuch, a powerful government official. Philip leads this man to Christ. And scholars say that this guy goes on to found the church in Africa. God can do more through one act of faithfulness than we can accomplish in 10,000 years of our own effort. In other words, God doesn't need your ability. God just wants your availability. The point is not what you can do for him, but what he can do through you. See, I think when we get to heaven, I think all of us are going to be shocked at all of the many powerful ways that God has used small acts of faithfulness in our lives. And I know right now some of you are working for corporations where your faith in Jesus is seen as hateful and phobic and intolerant. And you feel overwhelmed sometimes at the hostility and and at your seeming lack of impact on the people around you. The question here for you today is will you stay faithful? Will you share truth when Jesus gives you opportunity? Will you tell people who Jesus is whenever God opens doors? Will you just trust him with the results? Some of you parents, you're in a season right now with your kids. And maybe you've tried to teach them things for years, and right now it doesn't seem like any of that matters to them. Maybe, maybe you made a lot of mistakes before you came to Christ, and now that you're trying to follow Jesus, they don't think it's real. They're throwing all your past mistakes into your face today. They're angry. Will you stay faithful to the assignment God has given you? Will you learn? Will you grow? Even when it doesn't seem like it's working, will you trust God with the results? You know, moms and dads, I think especially that one day we're going to be shocked to see how God used the smallest acts of faithfulness to make the biggest impact on our kids' lives. You know, I just think of my own life. God blessed me with good and reasonably healthy parents who loved Jesus. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful And as I think back on their impact on my life, I know that it is far, far more about, uh, far, far less about any one thing they said or any one thing they did than it is about the day after day, week after week, year after year, just simple, steady faithfulness in following Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. And that's what Paul wants to do with his life. He just wants to finish. He identifies his task as testifying to the gospel of grace. And after explaining what is in front of him, he says, the Holy Spirit has told me beatings and imprisonment await him in the future. You know, you're never going to go to some seminar where they tell you that's what your future is about, right? That's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? People you pay money to sometimes telling you about all your potential. How come they never tell you about the beatings? And yet we see that so often Paul says, though, none of these things matter. He just says, I want to finish. And I think finishing is such an important thing because so many people in our culture start well, but they don't finish. Why not? I see it all the time as a pastor in a church. Why do people not finish strong? I was thinking about several things uh, that uh, I see that keep people from finishing. The first one is pain. 
Sometimes you experience pain as you attempt to serve God. The people you're ministering to aren't appreciating it. God doesn't reward you with success. It's easy to quit. That's what Paul experienced. People disrespected him. They betrayed him, took advantage of him. Sometimes it's fatigue. You know, as you serve God over time, the sense can be sometimes that it's just not working. Have you ever felt like no one is listening? I mean, Paul knew that. We think about Paul as this great, heroic apostle doing these marvelous, wonderful things for the Lord. But read what goes on in his life. His sermons sometimes ended with like two people who wanted to talk to him further. Everybody else was mad at him. Sometimes his sermons ended with people wanting to stone him. I'm grateful that's not been my experience in life. <laughs> so don't get any ideas, any of you. But Paul just kept going. Why? Why? Well, Paul understood how the gospel worked. Jesus' ministry had ended in sorrow and death, but God brought a resurrection. That's why Paul can tell uh, the Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their labor is not in vain, because even when it doesn't look like things are working, the God who brought resurrection out of Jesus' work, he can bring resurrection into our lives. Let me tell you I, what I think the main reason people have trouble finishing is. It's the third thing. It's divided hearts. You, you want to finish your assignment, but other things start pulling at your heart. It's like, I, I want to follow Jesus, but, you know, I love comfort, so I, I can't do that. I want to do what Jesus says, but, you know, I also want to live in this house, and I'm going to own these things, and so I have to say no to Jesus for a while. I want to follow Jesus, but I really want to be with her or him. I want to follow Jesus and stand with him, but I really need that person's approval. Do you have any divided loves that are keeping you from following through, keeping you from finishing? You know, we're almost two years in uh, to our three-year season, spiritual initiative we call it Next Gen. And I know right now there are some of you who've made a serious sacrificial commitment to Next Gen, and you've been working on that, and you've been faithful on that, and right now, some of you are tired. And the question for us, individually and as a church, is will we remain faithful? Will we stay the course? I hope that in these weeks that we're in right now, as you come here week after week and you see stuff happening, you're getting encouraged, right? There's some stuff getting ready to happen, and it's going to get exciting real soon. But are we going to be faithful? Or will we have a divided heart? Here, here's a great verse you can pray. Psalm 86.11 says, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. That's what Paul thought, what Paul wanted. He said, none of these things move me. I just want to finish well. I just want to hear well done. The Apostle Paul, he said to people, I don't need your approval because I live for an audience of one. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Paul said, I don't need your money because my God has promised to supply my every need in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I don't need to give myself to pleasure because in his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul's heart was not divided. That's why he could finish well. 
I'm just thinking about some of the tasks we need to finish well at this season of the year. There may be some students here, and maybe you need encouragement. Just finish well, a couple more weeks. And then there are some moms here right now, and you're in a chapter in your life. And those kids, well, do I need to say anything else? But maybe you need to see your life as a chapter, and maybe you just need to think, okay, how can I finish this chapter well before I start the next chapter Maybe there are some men here right now. Maybe you kind of feel bored with your life, bored leading your family. You're bored with your career, you know, using your career to serve God, you know, to spread the gospel. You need to finish. How many men have I watched over the years get into their 40s or their 50s and then things just kind of peter out? Don't be one of those ridiculous guys who gets bored with life in his 50s and goes out and buys a sports car and unbuttons his shirt down to where no one wants to see. Finish, finish. So how do you get the strength to finish? Where does that come from? And I want to tell you, this is very important. It doesn't come from looking far ahead. It comes from looking at the next step, what's right in front of you, focusing just on what God has given you today. Again, Martin Luther said something really profound. He said there were only two days on his calendar that mattered. You need to write this down. I'm just telling you, okay? Two days. This day and that day. This day and that day. That day, he said, means the day I'm going to see Jesus. This day is today because God is going to give me the strength to get through this day. This day, that day. A few years ago, uh, I read the book, A Lone Survivor. I'm sure some of you read it. Maybe you saw the movie that came out a few years afterwards. And in this book, uh, Marcos Luttrell talks about how he got through Navy SEAL training. He talks about how they, they, they take the, the, the SEAL candidates through what's called Hell Week. And for 48 hours in this week, no one sleeps ever. He said, they just try to kill you. And he said, that's where most guys drop out. And this is what he said. He said the only way to make it through those 48 hours was to think about only the next 10 seconds. He said, if I thought about the next 48 hours, I would have quit. But if I said, can I get through the next 10 seconds, I would get through those 10, and then I would say it again, and then I would do it again, and I would find the strength to get through those 10 seconds. I can tell you, from my Navy SEAL training, that was 100% accurate. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing, but, um, but spiritually, that is true. This day, that day, this is how you finish strong. God gives you strength to take the next step. You see, for a servant, success in life is simply about identifying what God has called you to and then being completely faithful in it. Do you ever... Find yourself in your life thinking about that day when you will stand before Jesus, when you will look into his face, and when you will have the opportunity to hear him say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. See, this is what living life backwards means, that we, we look to that day more than anything else, and then we let the rest of our life up to that day flow from that. Here's the last thing, number four. Live life backward, uh, give more than you take. 
In verses 33 to 35, Paul says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words, the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Paul, Paul thought that a successful, blessed life was one in which you gave more than you take. Is that how you define success? Is that what you think of when you think of being blessed? Why why does Paul think like that? Well, it's because of what Jesus had said and what Jesus had done. Think about this. On the night before he died, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. I mean, I want to just be honest with you. I'm your pastor, and I love you, okay? But if I knew that tomorrow I was going to die for you, today I would be like, this is me time, okay? (laughs) But not Jesus. Even then, it was the Son of Man came to, be, to serve and not to be served. Jesus always gave more than he took. You know, this is a really good question to ask in any relationship that you are in. Do you give more than you take? I mean, in your marriage, do you serve your spouse more than you expect him to serve you? You know, men, whose preferences do you think about more? Women, Whose comfort and happiness are you more devoted to? There's actually a counselor, a biblical counselor, pastor also named Brad Hambrick, who says about Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than receive. He says this is actually the best sex therapy counseling you'll find anywhere. And that was an application that you weren't expecting, probably. (laughs) See, it's what you do with your life more about others, more about God, or more about you. In what you do with your career, who is that about? Who is that for? Is it, is it about you taking all that you can? Or are you asking the question as you work faithfully and serve diligently, doing whatever God has called you to do in this world, are you asking, how can I leverage my career? How can I leverage my resources, my money for the mission, the kingdom of God? Are you ever asking that? You see, God gave each of us a career, and he gave it to us as a platform to serve him ultimately, to bless others, to extend his mission. People get confused about this a lot of times. It's not just that God called a few Christians into vocational ministry, and the rest of us go out and make money and serve ourselves and throw God a 10% tip. See, every job for every Christ follower is to be leveraged for the Great Commission. See, at the end of the day, if we are serving faithfully, uh, we don't work so that we have more for ourselves. We work so that we can be free to serve as God leads us and to give as God leaves us. Somebody said that greater financial capacity should increase our standard of giving much more than our standard of living. I mean, we could keep asking this question in so many ways. In your friendships, do you give more than you take? In your relationship with your parents, do you give more than you take? In how you see your retirement, do you give more than you take? I mean, is retirement a time that you're looking forward to, a destination that's out in front of you where you think of it as a time when it can finally, finally be about you, what you want to do? 
And that's the American dream. You work hard as you can, as long as you can, and retire as soon as you can so you can spend as much time as you can on yourself. Isn't that the American dream? And there are companies and corporations across our culture that are spending tens of billions of dollars to convince you that that is what life is all about. Amen? You don't want to say amen, do you? But it's the truth. (laughs) And you know what? Some of us have bought it. Some of us think that's what our lives are about. And I'm here to tell you today, by the standards of the Word of God, there's nothing true in that. Now, if you think I'm saying you shouldn't retire, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that you should think of your retirement time as a time when you can, can think of serving God in a different way than you've been serving Him now. I am saying that you should think of your retirement time as not just about you and doing what you want to do. But as God's servant, you continue to ask What has God called me to do during this season of my life? And how can I serve him? How can I serve his kingdom, his mission? How can I love Jesus' church? I heard about an older, wealthier man uh, say recently to his pastor, I want to give the biggest gift of all at my death. And he went on to say, you know what's awesome about how I'm living now in my retirement is that desire in my heart has affected me today. He said, I'm enjoying myself. I'm doing things that I would like to do. But he said, I am not spending all my money on me. He said, I'm actually living more frugally in my retirement than I have to because I want to give more to God's kingdom when I die. See, why did Paul think the way that Paul thought? Why did Paul want to give to others more than he took? And the answer is this. There was one relationship in Paul's life in which Paul knew that he would always take more than he could give, and that was his relationship with Jesus. We're going to see more about this in the next week or two as we continue on in Acts. But it's a very interesting thing to consider uh, Paul's journey to Jerusalem and compare it to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Scholars say that Luke writes in his gospel and then in this book, and he makes some connections. There are similar phrases, similar wordings comparing Paul's journey to Jerusalem with Jesus. Like Paul... Jesus set his face to go toward Jerusalem and had friends begging him not to go. But then at that point, the stories start to diverge. Paul went to Jerusalem, as we're going to see, with the love and companionship of his friends. Jesus went to Jerusalem. He was forsaken by every friend. He went into his trial alone. In the hour of his trial, Paul had, as his testimony, the comfort of the Holy Spirit in his heart. He would say, my God has stood beside me all the way. He will never leave me or forsake me. But in Jesus' hour of trial, he looked up to heaven and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus gave up far more for Paul than he would ever take from Paul. And how could Paul ever repay Jesus for that? Well, he couldn't. We can't. And so Jesus says to us, because you can never repay me for what I've done for you, he says, I want you to just live the way that I live for you. I want every relationship that you have on earth to be characterized 
more by giving than by taking. I want to live that way with my family. I want to live that way with my parents, with my friends, with my career, with my wealth, my resources. I want to give more than I take. And the reason we do that is that we remember the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And if that's what he did for us, then it makes sense for us to live that way toward everyone else in our lives. Four things we can do to live life backward. Love Jesus' church. Tell the truth even when it's hard. Stay faithful to Jesus' mission for our life. And give more than we take. And I'm just telling you today, that would make for an awesome funeral sermon for your life. You know, you can actually start writing that sermon right now if you live the way God calls us each to live. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach me to think about death so from that perspective I can know how I need to live. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? I want to encourage you uh, right now that as your heads are bowed that you would just take a moment to thank Jesus for all he's done for you. Thank him for his mercy. Thank him for his grace. And I want to encourage you also to pray specifically about whichever of these four things stands out most in your mind. God is pointing you to one of them for sure. I know, you know, maybe you just need to pray, God, help me to love Jesus' church or to tell the truth or to stay faithful to Jesus' mission, to give more than I take. Father God, we want to be people who live like Paul lived, to be a church that demonstrates the love of Jesus to the world that's watching. Would you help us, Father, uh, to live life backward, to always remember each day where you are taking us so that we can know how to live. And we pray these things now in the precious and strong and beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people together said,